Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. Today, SI's Brian Strauss joins me to talk about Man City beating Arsenal in the League Cup Final, MLS's season-opening storylines, Brian's take on his old friend Neymar, and my thoughts on whether Jill Ellis's job should be in jeopardy if the U.S. women fail to win the She Believes Cup. Onward! As promised, Brian Strauss joining me on the other end of the line. He is playing hurt today with a, a bit of a throat issue, but you were here, my man, so thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long, steep fall from uh, eating pizza with you last week in the office to uh, sitting here on IR, uh, so I apologize to our listeners for the, the sound quality today. <laughs> Lots to talk about. We've got, I want to lead off with Man City Arsenal, League Cup Final, First trophy of the Pep Guardiola era at Manchester City. League Cup, maybe not as sexy as a few other trophies, but it is a trophy uh, and not the first one that Man City will win this year. Um, three nothing. And in a game that it wasn't maybe classic City, um, but Arsenal really didn't put up a ton of resistance and City basically walks away with it. What was your take? The League Cup's an odd thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it really is. I like Cup Finals, and and um and and let's let's we should be open and transparent with with both of the aforementioned listeners that you you had wanted me to watch. Uh, you had suggested that we watch uh, the Manchester United Chelsea game, um, and I slept through that because I'm sick. And then I was like, oh, a Cup Final. Well, that's more exciting anyway. Who doesn't like a Cup Final? Um. And so I've been thinking about sort of the nature of the League Cup and what a weird, redundant tournament it is ever since then, even though it does, it is Sheffield Wednesday's last trophy. So I do have a, a tiny soft spot in my heart for it for that reason. But um, yeah, uh, you know, obviously, like you said, the first of at least two trophies for Pep at, at Man City, uh, surely more going forward. Um, they They weren't at their best. I think anyone who watched the game would agree that that was not a, a, a quintessential 90 minute, you know, for the Pep Guardiola archives performance. Um, but they still won really easily, uh, which says a lot about just the overwhelming amount of talent on that team and the money spent to acquire that talent. Um, and it says an awful lot about where Arsenal is right now too, I think, which is the fun part for me because for some reason I, Arsenal agony is just kind of an enjoyable spectator sport. Before we get to Arsenal, and I know you have more to say on that, um, I just want to have a little mini ode to Vincent Company. I knew this was coming. I I thought of you when he scored because like he's your guy. You love him and his dude. His reaction, like it was like a kid. He was he was like John Brooks, you know, who scored against Ghana. His reaction when he scored that goal, it was awesome. It's pretty great, and yeah. I, I've gotten to know Vincent Company because he's one of the figures in my book that yep. comes out soon. Uh, he represents oh. the defenders and. Uh, I've sat down with him a few times uh, over the last couple of years for the book. <gasps> and in, if I was impressed with him before I met him, since I met him, I am over the top impressed with who he is as a human being, who he is as a player, and how he goes about playing and thinking the game. And I think that'll come out uh, in the book for anyone who reads it, but... Um, he's a guy who's in his thirties and is said and says quite openly that he's learning new things all the time, especially under Guardiola. But 
his injuries have been such a, a mental uh, drag, I think, on him uh, and and you know some of the people around him over the last couple years that it's just really cool for me to see him get back on the field again and be the man of the match in a game where they won a trophy and he gets to lift another trophy in Wembley. Uh, he also just finished his MBA, by the way, oh, wow. uh, which gives you an idea of, of how rare a figure he is. But uh, he's a guy who has done a lot of stuff in the game and he's obviously based on his reaction to scoring and winning the other day. Um, you know, none of, he's not jaded by anything. And I think maybe he's even more thankful for what he's able to experience because he's been off the field so much in recent years. But uh, Vincent company, man, I was pretty happy for the guy yesterday. There was a play, I think near the end of the first half where he sort of ran down and nudged Obama Yang off the ball. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was, I, it just struck as well as the goal and his reaction, obviously, but that play was like, you know, obviously he doesn't have the, the, the speed, anymore but he took the exact right angle um gave just the right amount of nudge to to move Aubameyang without fouling him and you're just like yeah that guy that guy knows his shit like that was such a <laughs> that was such a good play um and and then I I thought about him again I guess like to get the trophy now at Wembley I guess that's the way it was traditionally for a long time but it didn't really sink in again to me uh that they have to climb like all the steps to get up there, you know, mm -hmm. like you play this 90 minute cup final, which I guess usually is intense. Um, I guess it wasn't that, and I guess Arsenal didn't make them work that hard yesterday, but, um, I thought about like company, like playing that whole game and being hurt and then doing all those steps to get the trophy. I guess you don't feel it at that point. I guess it's sort of adrenaline and, and happiness sort of carry you, carry you up. But, um, yeah, I definitely thought of you, uh, when he scored and I loved the reaction and, um, and it was cool to see, uh, Claudio Bravo, um, uh, you know, who's done so well, you know, one, two Copa America with, uh, titles with, with Chile, you know, I thought that early save, uh, whatever that was first 10 minutes, he made that really nice kick save, you know, maybe if Arsenal scores there, they, they have a little bit more confidence and resolve. Um, but you know, that save for him, another older guy, uh, who, who has seen his chances wane, uh, to make that play was kind of cool. And um, I, I have a soft spot also for Cunaguero. I just think the guy is just always dangerous. Mm -hmm. He's always creative. He's always a pest. He's always finding seams and 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 pockets and and weaknesses. Um, and and I I've always enjoyed watching him play. And I think that was his thirtieth goal of the season. They said, um, and it was just a audacious kind of finish. You know, sort of that route one uh, long ball over the top from Bravo. Um, and, uh, he knocked it down, kept it in front of him. Like you teach, you know, you teach forwards to do to sort of just, just, you know, knock the ball down in front of you, um, you know, keep running, uh, and, and his composure to do that and then hit that shot was, uh, was really cool. So, like I said, good performance from city obviously deserved, um, but asks uh, a lot of questions about Arsenal as well that I think many of their fans have been asking for years at this point. Well, and even about their new players, uh, you know, what Aguero was able to do, Aubameyang did not do, and he had opportunities uh, in this game. And, um, you know, you look at Arsenal in general and how they're viewed in the United States, and they are a very popular team in the United States. I'm fascinated States. by it. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we had, well, yeah, I mean, we had Will Leach on the, the podcast a few weeks ago, and he's, 
uh, as he explained, uh, he's become an Atlanta United season ticket holder and right. an Arsenal fan, but he's he was not an Arsenal fan during the Invincibles days. He became an Arsenal fan when they were more in this more recent stretch of fourth place every year, or now worse. And his view of what Arsenal represents under Arsene Wenger is completely different than it is for anyone who experienced the glory years in the early 2000s with Thierry Henry and Patrick Vieira and all those guys, Bergkamp. Um, what is what is it with Arsenal in the United States and and how have you observed that? I've always been fascinated by it. I, I don't think there's... Um, I, I think it's almost a unique U.S. soccer experience to be on Twitter during an Arsenal game. It really is. I, there doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, there doesn't seem to be another club that is is this. I don't know. It, it generates. It's 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 almost goth and like <laughs> navel gazing and 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 hand wringing and hair pulling and and but in a very sort of showy kind of way and and. I, in my in my opinion, there's no other team that that elicits this kind of um, this this kind of sort of moaning um, and uh, not only in tone but in sheer numbers. I, I don't know why it seems to me that Arsenal is the most popular foreign club, at least among you know anglophile american soccer fans i mean you know obviously madrid and barcelona are massive as well and you know mexican clubs but but there but there's something about a saturday morning on twitter when arsenal's playing um when we did our uh uh our oral history of mls a couple years back um and we should give a shout out to our our departed friend alex abnos for stitching that together for us. He's not dead. He just left us. Rest in peace, Alex. Yes. <laughs> um, thoughts and prayers. Um, uh, I, well, one of the, one of my assignments was to interview Ivan Gazidis, who of course was a MLS executive for a long time and is the long, now the longtime CEO of Arsenal. And, and we talked about this and at the time, um, I wanted to do a story on it. I wanted to do a sort of a big takeout on sort of America's Arsenal fascination. And, um, Obviously, I haven't done it, and now that I've handed the idea off to the world, someone else will do it. Um, but I, Ivan, my, my my conversation with him was unsatisfying. I, I, I he didn't have a sense of why it was, and the, the, he took a few stabs at it, and I thought they were and and with all due respect to Ivan, who's very cool, and I and always enjoy talking to him, but they were a little self serving. Like him, and he was talking about, well, they must love our 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 fluid and attacking style of play, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, uh. I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, you know, the, the 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 teams you mentioned of the early 2000s, I mean, you know, had had steel. They had, you know, Vieira and Saul Campbell and Gilberto Silva and like some 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 badass dudes, you know. So it wasn't all it wasn't all pirouettes. Um, but uh, you know, I I think it I think it's the book, you know. I think it's Nick Hornby. I think it's the cool name. Um, I think it's the fact that um, it's London, but it doesn't screen, you know, they're not called London something. So, so they sort of have this global appeal cause they're not tied to a specific place. But then again, they are, which is, you know, a, a, a cosmopolitan city that, you know, everybody studied abroad in. Um, and, uh, they're not the obvious sort of, um, nouveau riche front runner fan choice, right? Um, 
they didn't pop out of nowhere thanks to an oligarch or a sheik. And so you can sort of claim that they're, I don't know, somehow slightly more authentic, even though they're owned by the guy who owns the Denver Nuggets. Um, that's another thing, by the way. We should have a whole episode on on Stan Kroenke and his the guy. The guy's just not a winner. He's not. And and I I wonder how much of that I'm going to get in trouble for this, but whatever. Um, you know, he owns he owns the Avalanche, the Nuggets, uh, the 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 Rams, Rams, yeah, Arsenal, uh, the lacrosse team, and then of course. Uh, the Colorado Rapids, and and he owns all these teams, and and I, I think the Avalanche won a Stanley Cup like his first year when he was the owner. But if if anyone who's a hockey fan, like that team was stacked, like 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 he had nothing to do with the Avalanche winning that Stanley Cup. And like since then, you know, and and it's been you know a quarter century. He's got a couple FA Cup runs with Arsenal, and that that you know crazy month with Gary Smith's Rapids in 2010. And otherwise, you know, a lot of pissed off football fans in St. Louis and, and um, you know, won a lot of titles to show for it. So there, there, there isn't the sort of pressure clearly on Arsene Wenger from the up top uh, that might change things at the, at the Emirates. I'll stop now. No, I think it's a, it's a good discussion. I would venture, and this is anecdotal, that Arsenal is actually not the most popular team overall from the Premier League in the United States. I would bet that Manchester United has act, more actual fans and maybe even Liverpool. Um, but I do think among Brooklyn hipsters and media people that Arsenal is the most popular team. Yeah, I'm just going by, I'm just going by like the, like I said, there's something about there's something about Twitter when Arsenal's playing and, and the kind of sort of over-emoting that goes on. <laughs> That's just fascinating to me and different. And, you're, and I'm, I have no doubt you're right uh, about sheer numbers. But, you know, Arsenal's got more squeaky wheels, I guess. I don't know. It's just I, I just find it fascinating. I have no conclusions to draw on it. Um, but lots and lots of people that I guess I know or read or see or hear from are really, really like consumed and fixated by this club. And I just find that really interesting. Another thing that I find odd, and this is sort of going back to you mentioning London, is only <laughs> in Germany. In Germany, they call Arsenal Arsenal London. You ever notice that? No, I didn't. Really? It's really random. That is. But uh, I talked to Raf Honigstein about it. He said that's just something they do over there in Germany. Do they do that with the other London clubs? That I don't know. Like, I don't know if they say Chelsea, London. Oh, it's be- oh, duh. It's because they don't, they, if you just say Arsenal, they're going to think you're talking about the club in Buenos Aires. In Germany? <laughs> it was a joke, Grant. <laughs> okay. But I have to say, I have to say that I have, can I tell a quick Arsenal story? Is this Arsenal Argentina? Yes. Go for it. Okay. So when I went to Argentina in 2005, uh, my friend Will and I went to see. We were just going to go to as many games as we could. And everything from Boca River at La Bombonera to Arsenal de Sarandi. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, um, in, the, in the far outskirts of, of Buenos Aires. And um, you know, it was like multiple taxis to get there and then a walk through a field and climbing over a wall and and um 
we were like, where are we? Why are we doing this? We don't like soccer this much. And you get there and it's a kind of a rickety old stadium near a train track. And the train goes by and everyone there was incredibly super nice. And, um, they, 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 we got there early. So they kind of set us up in the little club kitchen and gave us, I think soup and like, like maybe like Milanese sandwiches or I don't even remember, but we just got the warmest, nicest feeling about the place. And, and it was kind of in a dingy area and it was hard to get to. And, and everyone was really, really kind and we enjoyed the game and we wound up sitting, um, behind a guy who heard us speaking English and Will spoke Spanish. And so we started speaking and we said we were from Washington DC and the guy just out of the blue says, do you know Christian Gomez? <laughs> and, and like, you know, he didn't realize he was talking to people who worked in soccer, obviously, but you know, yes, as a matter of fact, we do know Christian Gomez. So it turns out, <coughs> excuse me, that the guy we were sitting behind had been a youth coach of Christian Gomez. Cool. And so he asked if we could deliver a message to him and he sat, he wrote out like on a flyer, like on a ticket flyer, um, a message to Christian Gomez that I put in my pocket and, um, the next time I was at RFK, I, uh, I gave to him and there were honestly tears in the guy's eyes to read a note from a former coach of his that I happened to sit behind at a game in, in the, on the outskirts of Buenos Aires. So, uh, Arsenal has these really cool, uh, light blue and bright red jerseys and they're, they're, they're just, they're eye catching and amazing. And I bought one and it doesn't fit me and I like to wear it. And, um, that's, that's, so that's my Arsenal team, not the one in London or not Arsenal London. Did the youth coach give you like an email address that you could then give to Christian Gomez so that they could actually communicate more than just via written carrier pigeon? I don't remember. And I honestly, no one will believe me, but I, I never really read the note. I really didn't. I just put it, I just, I put it in my pocket and I, 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 I gave it to Gomez. I don't even remember what the note said. Speaking of South Americans, that to me is one of the biggest storylines, Brian, in the new MLS season, which starts this weekend. That was an amazing transition. You are a pro. I am a pro. You really are good at this. Um, There's a lot to talk about with MLS, and we aren't going to get to everything in this podcast, but there's some interesting storylines heading into this season. We'd rather talk about that than just give predictions, because everybody can give predictions. Um. For me, let's start with those South Americans in the league. There was a really interesting stat that I saw recently that basically it was like 34 of the last 35 designated player signings in MLS have been of players under the age of 30. And the one exception is Bastian Schweinsteiger. And I didn't quite realize how extreme it has gotten now in terms of these younger DPs being signed. Um, and I, I think the idea of MLS as a retirement league is basically going out the window now. But you've got to be excited for these South Americans uh, that are playing in the league this year, including the biggest transfer in league history, Ezekiel Barco, for $15 million with Atlanta United. Yeah, it's cool. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun evolution to watch. And, and I think we've seen enough you know, for every, for every Keen and Beckham and, 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 you know, maybe Henri who came over and did well, there, there've been several who didn't, there've been several who struggled. 
um, and uh, you know the money and the attention um, and the and the scrutiny um, normally doesn't. I guess more often than not, hasn't justified the return, and you know it, perhaps it's uh, it, it's a it's a sign of increased sophistication and scouting and an interest in participating in the in the in the transfer market more. We'll see if Atlanta sells Almoron, for example, and 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 what they're then able to to do with that money and how they reinvest it in the in the squad and in the club. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a cool trend to see, and I think it's one that a lot of people had been asking for, had been hoping for. Um, so, in a sense, they're getting what they wanted here, and and we'll see how it goes. I mean, we talked about Kun Aguero earlier. Barco's a guy who came from Independiente, just like Kun Aguero. It makes me wonder if MLS had been doing this ten years ago, twelve years ago, would a player like Aguero have done what Barco did? <clears throat> yeah, maybe. I don't think they had the the, the they don't have they didn't have the setup back then they didn't have the scouting they didn't have the network they didn't have the 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 cachet or the connections I think to make these kinds of signings this is you know w- when everybody wants things to get better right now and to change right now um, you know sometimes right now is not possible sometimes you've got to put in the work and 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 plant roots um, that, that over time pay certain dividends. And I think that's the case with signings like these, you had to build relationships with clubs and agents and scouts and all kinds of people down there, you know, and then one domino leads to another. And then you've got a guy like Tata Martino, who's willing to come coach an MLS, and then he's able to make additional calls. And, and, and it's just something that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a snowball that gets larger and larger as it rolls kind of slowly downhill over time. So, um, yeah, it's cool. It's fun to watch. And, and, and I'm glad that these guys aren't guaranteed superstars. I'm glad that clubs are, are, will be on the hook for their performance. And, and if, and if one of these players doesn't pan out, um, you know, they will, they will have to solve that problem. And then obviously if they do pan out, they'll, they'll win games and, and everything will be good. So I like to, you know, we want consequences for decisions, and so when you shell out this kind of money and take these kind of chances, there are going to be consequences either way. Keeping the South American theme here, Brian, there was a now defunct South American airline called TAM back in the day. You and I rode it during the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Decent airline. Uh, now that that TAM is gone, when we talk about TAM, it's targeted allocation money and MLS. It's not the sexiest thing, but in some ways it is. We've seen the salary cap basically double in MLS over the last two years, thanks to TAM, up to about $8 million per team. And that's had a big impact on rosters. I had a, a note last week on when I came on Fox Sports about the positives of this TAM injection are pretty straightforward. The teams are better. The rosters are better, especially for MLS teams in the middle of their rosters. Now, the negatives, one GM was telling me, include locker room chemistry, because you've got all these foreign players coming in on TAM who are making more than just about everyone else in the locker room. And then also the fact that it's freezing out some American free agents because a foreign TAM player can come in and make more money than the American player but actually count the same uh, or less on the salary cap due to the TAM situation. So what's, what's your take on all of that? Um, wouldn't it be crazy if we 
knew what everyone we worked with earned. How much do you make? I've told you before. <laughs> That's right. Oh shit. I'm not telling I'm not telling our listeners. Probably I, I'm almost certain it's not as much as they think. Um, but wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it be interesting if 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 not only we knew what everyone we worked with made, but if we knew that everyone knew what everyone you know what I mean? It's, right. it's not like it, not only do they all know, but they know that the whole world knows and that people like us talk about it. Um, that has to be an interesting dynamic. And I think anyone who who thinks that it's petty uh, to have that sort of thing bother you um, hasn't been in that situation. Uh, I, I can completely understand why it would be an issue. Um, <clears throat> you know, this this is, again, with decisions come consequences. And so people... You know, they want more money spent on MLS rosters. They want better players here. Well, then, then, you know, the, the league is at, a, is at a stage right now where its buying power, uh, its spending power, has eclipsed the pace at which it is developing younger first-team ready talent. And so th- there is not th- – th- that sweet spot is hard to find. And – um you know, there are leagues where development outpaces spending power, right? Many leagues in South America would be an example. They develop a lot of very good players, but they often can't afford to keep them. So they go abroad and they, they earn their living overseas. There are other leagues that are the reverse. The Premier League is the most obvious example. Its buying power is so massive that a lot of the players that are developed in the academies there never see first team minutes or go on loan or go to a lower division, that sort of thing. So MLS is in this kind of this weird spot. And and it, it's at a point where I think, maybe I'm reading too far into it, but the academies are you know, 10, 12 years old. A couple of good players have come through. Um, but as the teams there where they play, as those spending power increases, it's going to become harder and harder for them to break in. So you know, it'll be up to individual MLS clubs, I suppose, to figure out where their sweet spot is. I really do think this is going to be a big ongoing story in MLS is why aren't young American players getting more opportunities to play? And when I talk about young, I mean teenagers and guys in their early 20s. It's a little ridiculous when the league itself acts like, you know, in its 24 under 24 thing that 24 is young in soccer. It is not at all. But Young guys aren't getting that many opportunities to play in MLS, and, and I think that's a concern for the national team. That's a concern for anyone who wants to see U.S. soccer, U.S. capital, U.S. capital S, develop. Um, and so will TAM have an even you know, more and even stronger impact on that? And I, I want to see how that plays out. I'd like to see more coaches take risks in a league where there's no – relegation so i did a uh, i did a feature on weston mckinney uh last fall and did two uh <coughs> excuse me for the coughing did two long interviews um with him really enjoyed chatting with him uh and one of the interviews was before the loss to trinidad and one of them was after so it was interesting that you know the different tones and the different topics and during the interview after the loss to trinidad um you know and he thought he had a shot at going to russia he really did and and he would have so he, he was, he was heartbroken and, and the kid is, he's smart and opinionated and, and he had things to say about American soccer and some of the issues that he saw. And one of the things that he 
spoke over and over about was sort of the cultural inclination in Germany uh, to play younger players. And of course, there are consequences in 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 uh, in Germany. There's relegation. I, I I also don't think relegation is the only consequence. I mean, MLS coaches get fired, right? So that's a that is another consequence that an MLS coach has to think about when he's making decisions about his roster and his, his yeah his but MLS coaches have they I think they get fired less often especially by teams in MLS where there's very little money paid to the coaches and the owners are cheap and and they don't want to fire somebody that that happens at some clubs I, I feel like more coaches have been fired I we would have to do the research but I feel like last year or two there have been there, there's been some turnover, but I'm just saying that there are consequences, right? It's not, it's not like MLS coaches are, are, are consequence free. Um, they're, they're told to win games and they need to win games to attract fans and sponsors and all that kind of thing. And sometimes they lose their jobs if they don't. So, so there are some, con- that's all I'm saying. Mm. Um, but, but McKinney, McKinney's point was that he, he thinks that there is a, that it is a cultural, um, uh, environment in Germany where they have so much faith in their own development, they have so much faith in the way kids are are brought up at their clubs that they are not as afraid to put them on the field in a first team game mm. because they're also the ones who monitor their development coming up. So so it's a it's a he talked about the family he has at Schalke and the connections he has and how he still spends time with the U19 coach and 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 there's a there's a quality there where um a, a, a kid coming up through the system at Schalke is not a new player when he gets to the first team. He's someone they're already familiar with, already comfortable with, already have faith in. And this is a culture that leads to not only a lot of young players getting their chance in Germany. And he said that he thinks American young Americans should go to Germany and not England for this reason, but also young coaches, right? They have faith in their coaching development as well. And so you see a lot of Bundesliga teams, you know, giving chances to younger coaches, coaches in their thirties, um, which you don't see in other countries. So it's a fascinating topic. I mean, I, I guess my question is, would McKenney and Christian Pulisic have actually gotten playing time in MLS had they been in MLS as teenagers? McKenney would because he was at Dallas. And, and that's one of the things he talked about, that 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 what Oscar Pereja um, built at Dallas was that same kind of family atmosphere where, you know, academy kids and we, we've written about this extensively at, at SI as well, uh, where academy kids have lunch with the first team, train with the first team, um, are, are, are told that youth is not a barrier. And Oscar has so much faith in his own system and has so much faith in his own eye and ability to groom talent that he doesn't have a problem with putting young kids on the field. And I know I know people want to see Paxton Pomacall and people, and, and people think maybe he should have even played more younger kids last season and, and maybe he reflexively took a step back or whatever. But I think overall people would agree that FC Dallas is, is better at this than just about every other team in MLS. And, and so for McKinney's point was that, um, you know, it's a cultural thing and some teams do it and some teams don't. Would Christian Pulisic have played for the Philadelphia union? That's a very good question. Yikes. A couple of other things I want to get to before we finish up here real quick. One, Neymar, uh, this is the biggest story in world soccer right now, Brian. They're down PSG 3-1 to one, uh, against Real Madrid heading into the return leg next week in Paris. Neymar was injured over the weekend, so it's a little up in the air whether he's e- even going to be able to play. You wrote the big cover story on Neymar for Sports Illustrated last summer. 
do you think he made the right call to go to PSG? I, I, it's important to say, you know this, of course, but it's important to say that, that uh, and this may be a bit too under the hood for a lot of people, but when we did the story on Neymar and spent the time with him in L.A., this was before he decided to leave Barcelona. So um, I never had the chance to, to ask him about the decision um, to move. At the time, we, we, he was talking about uh, he's, a, he's a big basketball fan and he had just been to see the Golden State Warriors play. And he was talking about, you know, we were talking about Kevin Durant going to the Warriors as being sort of an, uh, you know, something akin to him going to Barcelona you know, a, a, a subversion of ego in order to reach great heights with a great team. Um, and so he also said, however, during this interview that he did want to be player of the year. He did want to be considered the best in the world. That, that was something that was important to him. And so clearly once sort of the idea was in his head and the bug was in his ear, uh, he realized that in order, in order to be that, he had to not be on the same field as Lionel Messi. And I, and I get that. And so you go to a, a club like PSG that's never won the Champions League, um, that has one more hurdle to sort of clear before it's considered one of the, the truly elite blue blood clubs in the sport. Um, and he says to himself, I can go there and, and, and be the guy that, that, that brings them over the hump. So I, I, get, I get the decision. I get it. And obviously, who wouldn't want to live in Paris and, 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 and get paid millions to do that? Um, but you know, week in, week out, it's a relatively uninspiring league. Um, they're going to, they're going to win it easily. I know they didn't win last year, but, um, you know, they'll win league on easily and, um, they got a really tough draw. Uh, they, they, they got Real Madrid in the round of 16 and Real Madrid is the, this is the quintessential tournament team. Um, they're very, very hard to knock out uh, as they've proven. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really bad luck for PSG that they, that they, they could have drawn, you know, they could have drawn Basel, right, or Shakhtar, or, or, or I mean, they could have, but they drew Madrid, and now Neymar's hurt, and so uh, the best teams don't always win, the best players don't always win. You need some luck, you need your name on the cup, so to speak, and it doesn't look like it is uh, for PSG and Neymar this year. But I don't know that that means it was a bad decision overall. I, I understand um, the guy wants to have fun, he wants to enjoy his career, he wants to be great, um, and he he saw the chance to 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 do that. Um, in a different environment, and he took it. And so I don't necessarily think it was a bad move. It just won't work out right away. A couple things I'd say here. First off, I, I get tickled thinking about you and Neymar just talking about the Warriors and Kevin Durant and just sort of chit-chatting like that. That's kind of cool. Um, two, um, just a horrible final 10 minutes for PSG against Real Madrid. You know, If that 10 minutes transpires differently, we're in a much different situation. But that third goal, uh, that was just a killer. And uh, it's, it's odd to me how similar this feels in a way to the decisive game in World Cup 2014 for Brazil, the famous 7-0 against Germany, just in the sense that here you have Neymar who's injured and the decisive game is coming up and you've got a fragile Thiago Silva who may or may not be on the field. It makes me wonder if we're going to see you know, the sort of emotional outpouring that we saw before that game against Germany, holding up Neymar's jersey and everything. There, there is a photo out there of, of the two of us wearing, um, <laughs> <laughs> wearing Neymar masks. Yes. That we, cut out, we cut out from a Rio de Janeiro newspaper. <laughs> um, 
That was a long month, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I wanted to talk about the She Believes Cup, which starts this week. The U.S. women's national team hosting France, Germany, and England. And you and I both know this. There are two tournaments in women's soccer, national team-wise, that really, really matter. That's the World Cup and the Olympics. And there's a big gap between those tournaments and any of the others. But that said, we're in a situation here now, Brian, where since Women's World Cup of 2015, the U.S. women have been in three tournaments, and they have not won any of those tournaments. Didn't win in the Olympics in 2016. Last year, She Believes Cup did not win, got destroyed, actually. Four Nations Tournament did not win. Is Jill Ellis's job in any danger, I ask myself? Um, and I think maybe it should be if they have a bad tournament here. I know she's had the opportunity to do some experimentation more so last year, but I know for a fact that uh, there's there's some folks inside that team that are really concerned about the direction of the U.S. women's national team. I know you haven't followed it that closely uh, over the last couple of years, but what's your sense of of the U.S. women's national team these days? I always think I always think they're better than everyone else does. Um, <laughs> we we had this argument during the women's World Cup in 2015. I mean, yes, they didn't win. They they got knocked out early in the Olympics, but it was on penalties. I mean, they they, they didn't they didn't get beat, um, outscored. Um, you know, there's a pe- people want to. This team is so good and so consistent and so dominant that you know people look for uh, they look for trouble. They look for drama. Um, they they look they look for for signs of weakness or fault. And and I think Jill. Um, you know whether or not people think it was genius or accident or something in between. She pulled the right strings at the end of the Women's World Cup in 2015. She won- she led the U.S. to the to the ch- to the title, um, and then she had because of the way women's soccer is structured, because of the unequal kind of time she took. She took a very similar team to the Olympics. They lost on penalties, and then she had a couple years to to retool the team. And so that's what we're in the middle of right now. There will be Women's World Cup qualifying this fall. Whether or not she wins an, an, an exhibition tournament, um, I mean, I think the U.S. women have lost three games in the past year. Uh, you know, they had the two defeats back-to-back to England and France um, at the very beginning of 2017, um, and they lost to Australia over the summer. Um, they've been rolling teams since then. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a tempest in the teapot. Um, you know, when, when, when the U.S. fails to get out of its group at a Women's World Cup, then we panic. But uh, this team is too good and too consistent and loses far too infrequently on the big stage, I think, for there to be too much concern. So here's what I would say is if the U.S. doesn't win this tournament, should there be people questioning whether Jill Ellis should continue? Yes, I, I think there should be. Is her mandate to win this tournament? No, but I'm just saying if you're having tournament after tournament that you're not winning and you have done what the U.S. has done before. Remember, Tom Sermani got fired based on the Algarve Cup. So that actually turned out to be a pretty good decision considering the U.S. won the Women's World Cup a year later, but Ellis came in a year before. This is basically the same equivalent tournament as the Algarve Cup was for Tom Sermani. So uh, if that could get well, a coach... Did he get fired because he didn't win that tournament or because he lost 
the the support and faith of the of the real power brokers in that locker room. Both. You know, it's, it's a, a complex story. I guess what I would say is I don't think that even if they fall flat on their face in this tournament, I don't think Joel Ellis is going anywhere because I think you have a new president, Carlos Cordero, who's already trying to fill the U.S. men's national team job, who's already trying to fill this open GM job for GM both job. the men and the women. And I don't think he wants to have a vacancy that he has to fill for his other senior national team coach on the women's side. So I just don't see that sort of thing happening, yeah. even How if they're ex- terrible. And, and again, these are these are these are you can call it a tournament. You can, I mean, she believes is a it's a it's a cool initiative by U.S. Soccer, and and it's and it's about more things than just the friendly, and it's great. But it but it's that I mean more things than just the the collection of games. But it, it's still. It's still not an official competition. These are friendlies we're talking about. And we can we can say that women's soccer has too many friendlies and that the structure of the official competitions um, you know, doesn't doesn't put the team in position to play enough competitive matches and and, and face the scrutiny and pressure uh, that, that those matches would bring. But this is the this is the structure of the sport right now. She won the women's World Cup title. She won what five to one in the final, five to two. My God, I can't remember the score. <laughs> Help me. Um, and uh, and and she's been coaching. You know, she's been coaching friendlies for the past couple of years. So, um, you know, if if there's also you would know better than me, but it seems like a lot of the power brokers that were there on that team um, and that perhaps were itching for Sermani's ouster. They're, they're not so much around anymore, right? And, and, and so the team has gotten much younger, um, and, and there's a, a lot of players in there who, who owe their chances to Jill Ellis um, and who weren't part uh, who, uh, of a team that had the big, big, big personalities uh, of the cycle that concluded in 25, uh, 2015 and 2016. So, I mean, you would think there'd have to be an open revolt in that locker room uh, for her to lose her job over the results of a few friendlies. There'd have to be an open revolt. Well, if only every coach could have a for- boss as forgiving as Brian Strauss. Um, that's uh, you sound. You sound like you're not bothered by any of this stuff. Um, have I always been? You're right. I've always been way, way too lenient on our U.S. <laughs> coaches. That's me. <laughs> I've never gone after a national team coach before. Uh, well, I think that was a good discussion. Always great to talk to you, Brian. We will do this again next week as we always do have a good week all right sorry about the raspiness everybody thanks for listening to the planet football podcast i'd like to thank brian strauss as well as everyone at cadence 13 and sports illustrated who supports this podcast please if you like the pod tell your friends subscribe like and review it on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it really does help the cause if you do and check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available for free now on SI.com. Recent guests include Sebastian Salazar, Kevin Egan, Fernando Palomo, and Paul Tenorio. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. 
Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.